You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange on this National Hot Dog Day. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The soft landing, maybe even the no landing, has now fully become consensus. But just as we're declaring the coast is clear on the economy, could we be caught off guard by an actual slowdown that no one is currently expecting? Our guest warns the market is overvalued and recession risk is super elevated. He is standing by to make his case. Plus, speaking of market euphoria, shares of Carvana have rocketed both to the downside and the upside in the past 24 hours. They're still up almost 30 percent in today's session and more than a thousand percent from the recent lows. Are investors giving the company too much credit for its move to deleverage? We'll debate. And a surprise drop in new home construction to the slowest pace in a year. What will that do to prices and inventory? Before all that, though, to Dom Chu with the market numbers. The markets are as green as the relish you might put on a hot dog, Kelly, on this National Hot Dog Day. The, the conversations you guys miss off air between Kelly and I about today being National Hot Dog Day. Anyway, green on the screen, as I point out, but we've lost a little bit of momentum in the trade so far today. The Dow Industrial is up about one-third of 1%, 120 points to the upside, 35,070 the last trade there. The S&P keeps going further towards 4,600. It's at 4,567, up about 12 points, one quarter of 1%. Uh, for the trading range, I often give you guys that at the highs of the session, up roughly 24 points and up about six points at the low. So again, generally positive so far today, although trying to find that middle of the range, losing some steam. The Nasdaq composite just about flat on the session, up one-tenth of 1%, 14,368. A little bit of a breather from that tech trade overall, but I'll get to more on that in a bit. If you take a look at one of the places that we are seeing a bigger bounce besides the major indices overall, check out AT&T. We've told you over the last few days or so the near three-decade lows that AT&T stock has hit, most recently because of a Wall Street Journal story talking about the possibility of lead-lined copper pipe or copper tubing used in its infrastructure for its network for communications. Well, AT&T pushing back a little on that today, saying that they estimate less than 10% of their pipes could have this kind of lead exposure. That stock is up 8%, but again, year-to-date, still lost about a quarter of its value, bouncing a little bit here. We'll see how that story plays out in the coming days and weeks. So that's AT&T. And then on the financial side of things, we had Goldman Sachs, but on tech, arguably the most important stock in the market, AT&T to Apple now. Apple up two-thirds of 1%. Those shares, by the way, do hit a record high in trading so far today, being propelled by a Bloomberg story saying that they, Apple, are working on their own chat GPT-like artificial intelligence chatbot. Some elements have already been rolled out to certain employees within Apple. So those headlines sending Apple shares, Kelly, to a new record high. And again, anything AI these days, right? It kind of provides a bit of a pop. The intraday chart's pretty dramatic. I'll send things back over to you. One, almost 195 for Apple. Dom Banks, appreciate it very much, Dom Chu. Stocks broadly do continue to rally as Wall Street goes, and, and everybody goes all in on the soft landing, or maybe we just call it the no landing trade. But my next guest says valuations are extremely high and elevated recession risk remains. Joining me now is Michael Darda, chief economist and market strategist at Roth MKM. It's great to see you, Michael. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. I, you know, I think it's the perfect day. I do, because there, you know, Goldman says 20% recession odds. Credit Suisse takes its S&P target from 4050 to 4700. You can't find a soul who thinks we're actually going to have a downturn at this point. Uh, what's everybody missing? 
Yeah, it's been uh, quite the turnaround from where we started the year, that's for sure. I think what's happened here is, is simply the chase is on. So the equity market obviously is surprised to the upside this year. That coupled with the fact that the bottom hasn't fallen out of the economy just yet uh, seems to be leading many economists to to dramatically reduce their recessions, uh, recession odds for the year. Uh, but I, I think that's a bit of a dangerous game here, simply because equity markets can run right into a business cycle peak. And in fact, we've had a few recessions where equity markets have actually peaked after the cycle peak. So if we're hanging our hat on the fact that we've had this explosive rally this year in strength and coincident and lagging indicators, I, I think that's highly problematic, in, in my opinion. But it's the leading indicators have been so bad that I'm starting to wonder if the storm's just going to blow over. In other words, looking at the literal index of leading indicators, I think it's never been down more than 12 months, which I think we're down 14 months now, maybe year on year. It's never by, by month 12, we're always in a recession. So something very unprecedented is happening here where all the leading indicators have been so bad, but the recession hasn't showed up yet. Yeah, yet. Uh, that's, I, I think, the key word. So the index of leading economic indicators, you know, this peaked 18 months ago. Um, you know, the consensus is another fall uh, for this past month. And so, you know, it is getting, you know, towards the towards the longer end of the range. It's 18 to, I think, 20 months have been the, you know, the longest lag before a, a recession hit. If we look at the yield curve, we've got an unprecedented uh, inversion here. And it's deep and it's been very persistent. The 10-year to one-year Treasury spread, which is the one that we focus on, we're 12 months into an inversion now. So typically recessions have occurred 12 to 14 months uh, post-inversion, but sometimes it's 18. We've even had a few that are closer to two years. So to declare the coast clear, because payroll growth has been positive this year and the equity market has rallied, you know, I think that's a bit of a, a straw man argument. And, you know, with the with the Treasury yield curve, we're definitely getting there in terms of when we could start to see some serious trouble for the cycle. Let's see what the second half brings. If we make it through the first half of next year, then I think you're legitimately getting into territory where we can say, OK, you know, the, the longest leading indicator, something has gone wrong here. But uh, I think to be highly confident of a soft landing, uh, simply because the equity market is rallying, payroll growth has been positive so far with this historic yield curve inversion, a historic collapse in money growth, historic tightening of lending standards. And let's not forget the Fed's reaction function here is to get to a restrictive stance and then hold there in the defined is any level of in any configuration of the balance sheet that leads to below trend growth. So the no land actually doesn't make sense just based on what the Fed is seeking to do. They'll simply continue to tighten policy until growth weakens sufficiently. And as long as the labor market's tight, they are not going to be super confident that inflation will continue to roll over, right or wrong. You know, that's the reaction function. Yeah. And so with the equity market up here at a 20 forward multiple, I mean, we've got the Infotech index. It's led the rally this year at over a 28 forward multiple. We haven't seen that since the end of 2021, just before a more than 30 percent collapse in that index. So I think if we're upping the bullish bets here based on this action, and it's happened on no earnings growth, I mean, there's no increase in forward estimates from, you know, from where we were last October, um, you know, a dangerous place to be. 
But I admire your conviction because, you know, there's people, and I think sort of to put it less eloquently than maybe Goldman did, it's almost like they can't find a way to get to a recession at this point. You know, we look at some of the consumer metrics, we look at housing, which has been kind of on the upswing, you know, at least residential construction. You look at the fiscal impulse, which is getting more and more attention because so many of these fiscal projects have to happen before the end of 2024. And that that seems to be kind of feeding in the the construction boom that we're seeing, you know, the investment, the infrastructure. So how do we kind of tip this economy over enough that within a quarter or two, you know, and it looked like with claims going up a, a month or so ago that that was starting to happen and then they came down again. Yeah, well, things could turn quickly. Um, you know, the so-called excess savings will essentially run out by the fall of this year. Uh, and so that could start to, to change the picture a bit. But if you look at same store sales and nominal aggregate, I mean, they're comping negative in nominal terms now year yeah. over year. And that data takes us into July. Um, you know, people seem to get excited over this retail sales report yesterday. But in real terms, inflation adjusted, you've got year over year growth down five months in a row unprecedented outside of a recession. The jobless claims numbers have have been volatile um, and have pulled back recently, but year over year continuing claims are still up close to 30%. Again, unprecedented, unprecedented outside of a recession or just prior to one. So I don't think we're quite out of the woods here, but the equity market rally is simply coloring the perception that the soft landing is in the bag and you know we'll see how that works out. No, it's like you can't move him. He ain't moving. There's, there's there's a song lyric that'll come to me in the middle of the night, Mike, to describe it. And uh, it is fascinating to watch this play out. And more and more people are saying, you know, don't be too fooled. You know, in 2008, uh, it did feel like this as well. Thanks so much for your time and for joining us. Thank you. Michael Darda with Roth MKM. Speaking of the consumer, it does look like spending uh, is stabilizing a bit. But there's a divergence when it comes down to who is spending what. Higher income spending has been trailing low and middle income cohorts for most of this year, with weaker spending growth apparent across retail, as Mike was referencing, and even the services industry. That's just one finding from Bank of America Institute's latest consumer checkpoint. For more here, let's bring in the author behind the report, Liz Everett Chrisberg, head of Bank of America Institute. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And maybe you can kind of add some color to the concern that Mike was just expressing there. I mean, what would you say is the health of the consumer overall at this point? I think when you look at the headline, and overall consumer spending, it's really stabilizing. It's coming off the peaks of last year, but we're, we're kind of in a consistent spot. What I think is interesting and what we're able to do within Bank of America Institute is dig into the data of the 68 million consumer and small business accounts and understand where the divergence is between different groups. So one of the ones that people are thinking about right now and that we uncovered in our data is the difference between spending trends between homeowners and renters. Hmm, interesting. And you would think that higher interest rates, higher inflation would be disproportionately infecting homeowners because they have mortgages. But the reality is before the rate hikes, only 1% of outstanding mortgages were floating rate. So 99%, and it's a little bit less than that now, have fixed rate mortgages. So they're kind of insulated totally. from that change. Whereas if you're a renter, you're renewing your lease. And what we've seen since rent inflation really started at the beginning of last year is about a two percentage point difference between the spending of homeowners and renters, where renters are pulling back because they 
they have, have to, to pay more rent. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting because you'd think that would correlate to maybe homeowners are more high income and renters more middle income. But then you see almost the opposite trends for those kind of income cohorts. What's going on there? Is this the yeah. white collar recession effect or the well, tech layoff? I, th- I think when you look at the homeowners and the renters, we're actually seeing that consistently across the different income profiles. But to the point you were just making, if you look at spending patterns between lower and middle income households and higher income households, the lower and middle income are continuing to spend. The higher income households have actually started to contract. And there's really, I think, one reason for that that we've identified looking at our data, which is wage and income growth. Hmm. So what sectors are continuing to hire? What sectors are continuing to have spending? Leisure, services. And we're seeing that not necessarily in the, well, actually, we are seeing it in the data of income coming into consumer deposit accounts, but also in our small business data. So just this morning, we released our small business checkpoint, which looks at payroll payments. Mm -hmm. So not on who's getting the money, but who's paying the money. And their payroll payments are up about 2% in June, but a big difference in sectors. Year on year or month on month? Year on year. Wow. So lodging. Let me just pause for a second to point out how shocking this is. Well, first of all, the fact that we don't often see the headline, middle-income consumers doing better than high-income ones. I mean, that itself is not where kind of the media or our our sense tends to go, and it's important to highlight as you have. But the other thing is what you said about small business. We were told and warned that by this point in the cycle, small businesses would be facing 9 or 10% rates on loans, massive problems from the banks, which kind of goes back to Fed hikes and, and Silicon Valley and all the rest of it. And that that's where we'd be seeing the hiring pullback. And that's where we'd be seeing the weakness and the recession that Mike is talking about that he keeps re- yeah. expecting was going to show up there first. And now you're talking about trends that kind of point in the opposite direction. Well, it depends on what sector you're looking at. So if you're looking at lodging, if you're looking at restaurants, their payroll spending growth is up 13%, 6%. Construction, you were just talking about residential yeah. construction, that's up 6%. But those are usually what we think of as lower income, lower earning sectors. If we look on the flip side, finance, real estate, insurance, payroll spending growth there actually contracted in wow. June, down 2%. And that fits in with the narrative that we're seeing in our data as it relates to the higher income consumer. And maybe also helps explain why it's such a confusing economy right now, where we do see certain parts of it that are under pressure and then other parts holding up well. What does this tell you on aggregate? Well, I think in aggregate, you don't want to look at the aggregate. And that's, (laughs) I mean, that's that's the issue. It's not, you know, we're not in Lake Wobegon. Everyone's not the same, right? Um, And I think that's the value in what we're able to do at Bank of America Institute, which is dig into the details to uncover those different cohorts and understand where the distinction is because not everyone's experiencing the economy the same way. Yeah, that said, as a whole, aggregated credit and debit card spending is down 0.2% year on year. So, you know, again, if you say that kind of represents, um, you know, maybe nominal GDP, something that there is pressure there, you know, to be sure. Leisure in particular, I wanted to ask about because we've been told about the strength in services, strength in leisure, travel, Taylor Swift, the common reference point yes, yes. on that front. But there has been um, some Wall Street data showing, well, maybe hotel bookings are a little soft. We've seen the stocks reflecting that as well. What can you tell us about what's happening there? Well, what I think is actually interesting there is, is if you look, when we looked at the different spending patterns across sectors, the only sector where we saw all groups spending more money is restaurants. Hmm. People still want to eat out. 
Um, not necessarily the same for the lodging side, but restaurants, people want to go. And maybe that's because it's a smaller luxury. Sure. Right? But you'd think with higher ticket prices, we've all had a little bit of sticker shock at restaurants lately that that's not holding people back. It's not holding people back, and restaurants are going out there and they're needing to pay more to get people to work because of that demand. So. Final question, what would have to happen in this data to tell you, you know what, be careful, the economy's about to slow, or maybe the opposite conclusion that it's picking up steam? I think we were just going to keep letting the data lead the discussion. We're going to continue to be looking at the U.S. consumer in terms of not just the income that they're going in and that they're getting in and the spending that they're putting out there, but also the state of their balance sheet. And one thing that I think is really important that we've been following since we launched the Institute last April is what's the level of deposit balances. And to this day, we continue to see significantly higher deposit balances for every income level, every generation, 40 to 70 percent higher than it was wow. before the pandemic. And while that has come down from the peak, it's stabilized over the last few months. So as we think about, is the consumer going to run out of money anytime right. soon? It doesn't look like it based on the patterns we see. That is fascinating. Liz, great to have you here. Thanks for the data and for breaking it down. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. Liz Everett Chrisberg, head of Bank of America Institute. Still to come, streaming, steering, and storming. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key names ahead in earnings exchange. If you can guess them, tweet me at KellyCNBC. Uh, just don't look at the screen. And mortgage rates are still sky high, meanwhile, but refis have rebounded slightly. Who is doing a refi at these rates? We'll talk about that and more with Black Knight's Andy Walden just ahead. And as we head to break, here's a quick glance across the markets. Dow's up half a percent, 151 today. S&P's up 11 or a quarter percent. The Nasdaq's down about three points right now. The Russell's barely higher and the 10 years at 376. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. With the big banks out of the way, the rest of earnings season is now gearing up. So we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key names that are about to report today. Starting with Netflix. Shares touching a 52-week high after climbing 60% this year. The stock fractionally lowered today, but the company just quietly removed its cheapest ad-free plan for new users in the U.S. and the U.K. It did the same for Canadian customers last month. Street's obviously listening for more on that decision and other factors like subscriber growth since the password-sharing crackdown updates on ad supported tiers and the impact of the Hollywood strikes here now with our trades today is Danielle Shea VP of options at simpler trading Danielle since you're the goat I'm going to ask you an additional layer here because when I checked this morning Netflix shares were up three percent and now I'm they're negative the whole Nasdaq's negative I don't know maybe you can just add some color there to what's going on with the stock here so, Kelly, when you look at the stock over the course of the last quarter, we've seen a very bullish move. I mean, last quarter after earnings, it did fall 2.8%, but we had buyers come in ever since, and yesterday it was up 5.5%. When you look at that, that's bullish price action. Yes, it is down slightly today, but, you know, the Nasdaq's extended. Netflix has already had a huge move, and so that's why when I'm looking at this stock, I say, hey, you know what? It's longer-term bullish, but the earnings move may very well be priced in today. Right, because everyone was telling us, oh, just wait, this could be an earnings. And I'm like, okay, if you're telling me, it's probably priced it. Yes, that's exactly true. And when you're looking at the options market, you can see that there's a pretty big move priced in. We have a $40 move that's being priced in today. Wow. And so as an options trader, when I see a stock that is in a bullish trend and we've already had a big move, there's a lot of news surrounding it. What happens is the IV gets incredibly high and it provides a premium selling opportunity. So with Netflix, I like to come in, sell the calls and the puts, but buy some outer layers as protection and take advantage of an IV crush overnight. 
All right, Bulls take note because, you know, this makes sense to me based on all of the optimism that I'm seeing. Let's move on to Tesla, kind of a similar story. Huge rebounder this year. Shares have more than doubled and are just 5% off their 52-week high. It comes as the company is actually expected to post its worst automotive profit margins in years thanks to a series of price cuts. Investors are also listening for updates on the Cybertruck, which has finally started production and anything AI-related. Danielle, I know you're a longtime fan of Tesla. What do you do with it here at 294? So, Kelly, when you look at the stock right here, you can see that there's some area of resistance overhead about 310, 315, and Tesla has a market maker move priced in of about $20. So, when I'm looking at this stock and I'm taking into account everything that's occurred over the course of the last six months, you have the price cuts. I think those are bullish. I think the fact that Teslas are now um, able to get that tax rebate. I think that's huge. And additional car makers taking on the Tesla charging standard, I also think will be huge for Tesla. So I'm looking at this stock to break up above the 315 price point, hmm. hopefully on earnings. If we can't get it on earnings today, I'm still looking at those longer term price patterns to break it up through that zone and cause a FOMO induced buying rally for continued upside in this stock. Wait a minute. You're telling me we're not already in a FOMO induced buying rally? Oh, we absolutely are. And that's what's amazing about these areas of price resistance is every time we hit one of those zones and the price keeps going higher, people say, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm not involved. And even though it's up so much already, they continue to buy it, which causes the stock to continue skyrocketing. All right, 294 into the print, which could be a dramatic one. Let's end on one name that started out okay this year, but has been struggling in recent months. Traveler shares down 9% since Jan 1 as insurers get hit with catastrophe losses. That's a key number to watch. Morgan Stanley noting travelers also has strong investment income and disciplined expense management, but more car accidents and costlier claims continue to be a headwind. Now, you might wonder, why did I pick Travelers, Danielle? But I was looking for a stock that you were much more bearish on, and this seems to fit the bill. Yes, that's correct. And when you look at the stock, I really do not like the way that it's behave been behaving over the course of the past few months. And then also look at Progressive. Progressive last week rolled over post earnings. And I think that same thing could happen with travelers. The two charts have very similar patterns. And when you look at the way that the trend has shifted into a bearish trend, we have some consolidation and we have a lot of overhead resistance. So I think with travelers, you have resistance around 175. You have about a $5 expected move. And I think it can easily fall off a cliff here. So I'm looking for this stock to trade down into the 155, 160 price point. Um, ultimately, the monthly charts, I will say, continue to look bullish. So this is more <laughs> of a short term short for me. Um, until we get into a decent pullback zone to resume the longer-term uptrend. That's interesting because it really has been a reversal of fortune for some of these insurers this year. Pretty remarkable to see. Danielle, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Danielle Shea, VP of Options at Simpler Trading. Coming up, Carvana is off to the races after reaching a deal to reduce its debt by more than a billion dollars. It's only up a thousand percent since Jan 1. Oh, it's doubled in just the past month. Is the restructuring enough to reassure investors for the long term? We'll debate with the stock still down more than 80 percent from its all-time highs. And as we head to break, here's a quick glance at the Dow heat map with Verizon finally rebounding, catching a bid today up five and a half percent. Salesforce up nicely, three percent, new 52-week high. Microsoft, the worth this is this whole day is really a reversal of fortunes. Microsoft down one and a half percent today. We're back after this. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. little different picture. Definitely still green on our screens today, but the Dow has cut its gains in half. It's up 141. The S&P is up 9 to 45.64. And the Nasdaq is lower today by 11 points. And by the way, some key names about to report, as we just mentioned, Netflix, Tesla, among others. Netflix shares are lower right now. And we want to zero in on shares of Joby. We highlighted the stock on the show recently as excitement about these smaller electric aircraft gain hold, the kind of thing that could take you to the airport, for instance. But the shares are down 17 percent today after J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock to underweight. They call their recent outperformance largely overblown, saying they decoupled from fundamentals after, look at this, a 250 percent rally since Jan 1. Now, we spoke with Canaccord's analyst last month who initiated the stock with a buy, saying the EV tall sector, as it's known, could reach 45 million monthly active users in the next decade. But J.P. Morgan's, on the other hand, saying they're speaking with institutional investors and sense a lot of skepticism around the actual timing and size of commercial opportunities over the next decade. If you want more on that call, head over to CNBC.com pro. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News Update. Kelly, thank you very much. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Pentagon announcing just minutes ago a new round of aid to Ukraine, the additional security assistance totaling $1.3 billion. And the Pentagon says the money will fund munitions and critical air defense capabilities, including surface-to-air missile systems. Two IRS whistleblowers testifying now before the House Oversight Committee on the Hunter Biden investigation, both critical of Attorney General Merrick Garland and the U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who oversaw the case, criticizing them for gross mismanagement throughout the investigation and abuse of authority with DOJ tax and the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office. And Live Nation says Travis Scott's concert at the Pyramids of Giza has not been canceled, contradicting previous reports. I can use my tickets now. The concert giant refuted reports from Egyptian media saying outlooks outlets saying they had revoked the permit because the show went against the cultural identity of the Egyptian people. Live Nation says the concert will continue as planned at the end of the month. Thank goodness, Kelly. Back to you. I am sure this will not hurt Buzz uh, going into that concert. It'll probably do better no. than ever. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, it's harder than it's been in decades to afford a home, but new data still suggests the housing market may be perking up a bit. We will break down all the numbers next. Welcome back. The home builder stocks mixed today like the rest of the market. Bees are touching a 52-week high earlier, still up almost 3%, but Toll and Pulte are slightly lower after the latest data on new construction. For that, let's bring in Diana Olick with the numbers and the takeaway, Diana. Well, Kelly, June housing starts were down, not as much as expected, but both single and multifamily fell from May. But I want to focus on single family because that's where we have this critical shortage of homes for sale, which has reignited home prices. Single family starts fell 7%, both for the month and year over year. This after a massive jump in May that was revised lower. Builders said in the sentiment report yesterday that they were still getting strong demand due to low resale supply, but they're up against higher mortgage rates and higher costs for materials as well as material shortages. Now, lumber is getting some chatter after the starts report today. Lumber futures are up just over 12% since May, and that is partly due to the Canadian wildfires and slower deliveries of lumber. That's a big hit to builders already paying more for other materials. Single-family building permits were slightly higher from May, but down 3% year over year. Builders are clearly just being careful, especially as mortgage rates were 
over 7% at the end of June and have not come down much off that. Builders reported lower expectations for sales over the next six months in the sentiment report, and that, again, is due to those higher rates hitting affordability. Higher rates are still, though, keeping current homeowners who are paying much lower rates in place, and that should continue maybe to benefit the builders. Kelly? I don't know if it was your uh, data or the weekly data or Andy's data. We'll talk within a moment, uh, Diana. But uh, did I hear that refis, who in the world is refining when the mortgage 30-year fixed rate is 7%? You have to to keep it in perspective. Yes, refinance applications week to week rose 7% because mortgage rates came down from that 7% level to like 6.85%. So when we say they rose, they rose a little bit from a very low amount. So you have to keep it all in perspective. They are still way down from a year ago and barely 25% of the mortgage market right now. They were, during the pandemic, 80% of mortgage demand. And maybe the refi you know, base would be anybody who you know, got the worst possible timing, yeah, maybe like a 7.3. Right, exactly, yeah. and thought, <laughs> okay, well, let me jump in and every little bit, I guess. Uh, Diana, thanks very much. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. Potential buyers may not want to hear this, but for the rest of you, it could be good news. Home prices might be starting to firm up and, dare we say, rise again. Joining me to explain is Andy Walden, Black Knights VPs of Enterprise Research. Andy, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Good to see you, Kelly. You warned months ago this may be coming. You think it's starting to happen? It definitely is. If you look at our Black Knight home price index for the month of May, you you saw the fifth consecutive gain. You saw home price growth equivalent to 8.9% if we saw that for a 12-month span. So yeah, absolutely, we're starting to see a shift and it's gone from firming to to heating out there in the market. Explain that a little bit. Give us the numbers. Yeah, so it's it's uh, 0.1% year over year. So effectively flat from the same time last year. But if you look at seasonally adjusted month over month changes, it's up 0.7% in May. That's effectively what we've seen over the last three months. And if you saw that type of growth for a 12-month period, we'd be talking about home price growth over 8% again here uh, 12 months from now. So, you know, we'll see if that trend continues to hold as strong as it has been over the last couple of months, but certainly some signs of reheating. So basically, if we sustain the recent price increases that you guys are tracking, and if it shows up in the Case-Shiller or FHFA or whatever, and if we sustain that pace, we could be talking about an 8% increase in home prices over the next 12 months? Year over year, right? That's what it's equivalent to. Now we'll we'll see what takes place, right? Because we're still seeing this this kind of odd position where we're seeing very weak demand out there. If you look at where it was in early July, we're still 35% below where we traditionally would be in terms of purchase rate lock volume in our Optimal Blue platform. So still weak demand uh, out there in the market, but again, we're still 50% short on inventory. So when weak demand runs up against even weaker supply, you see prices firm and heat up, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, and again, you know, there's there's probably a lot of new homeowners out there going, okay, well, at least I didn't buy and immediately find myself 20% underwater. Right. But if you haven't right. bought yet, you're going, okay, this this picture keeps getting worse. Yeah, folks that haven't bought are, are just, you know, they continue to get hit with blow after blow after blow. I mean, we saw home affordability hit a 37-year low last October. It just reset that low in July of this year while home prices are firming up. And so you just really can't catch a break for those folks that are out there shopping and trying to get into the market. And I have to imagine if we're trying to unlock inventory to normalize the market, this is now a double whammy because no one wants to move and pay a higher mortgage rate. No one wants to move and pay rising and elevated home prices either. If prices crash because of rates and we're down 30 percent, people might go, you know what, I can find a bargain. But that doesn't sound like it's the case right now. 
Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're still seeing that, right? Existing homeowners unwilling to sell. We saw a 28% deficit in terms of existing homeowners listing their homes for sale. And that's kind of been the story so far throughout 2023. So those folks still locked in. You still have two thirds of folks that have a rate three percentage points below what they can get today. And so you're not seeing those folks budget at all. Now you are seeing, despite the June pullback that Diana was talking about, broadly speaking, if you look at new construction, you're seeing some relatively good numbers. You're still seeing some decent supply there in terms of homes under construction, but those existing sellers that are that lifeblood just simply aren't moving. So final question, because I've seen some more color on, you know, Twitter and places like that about how uh, there are price declines, especially out west in areas like that. How even are the home price increases that you're tracking? So it, it really depends on the way that you look at it, right? If you look year over year, where we are in, in May, June of this year compared to last year, absolutely prices are down in the West, right? And in uh, a number of markets across the country, if you look at the reheating, right? San Jose is a great example of this. San Jose lost 10% of its value last year faster than any market ever has. Wow. They were the second in terms of month over month price growth in May. And so you're seeing some of those markets that had been seeing my, massive declines, they're still down from their peak in, in the West, but you're starting to see them pick back up. But there are 27 of the 50 largest markets that are now pushing new highs uh, this spring in terms of prices. And they're primarily in the Midwest and, and upper Northeast. Wow. Fascinating. Again, I, I don't think I don't think we really have have let this sink in yet, uh, especially if it does continue. Just extraordinary. Andy, thanks for bringing it to us. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Andy Walden with Black Knight. Still ahead, we are just two days away from the highly anticipated Barbenheimer, the double feature of the Barbie movie and the Oppenheimer one. But the buzz is not enough to offset concerns about the ongoing strikes in Hollywood. In fact, J.P. Morgan downgraded Cinemark today. We will have those details next. Stocks up about 2%. And also take a look at shares of Oddity Tech popping in their trading debut today. This was an IPO priced at $35. It opened at $49.10. So we're actually almost about a dollar below that opening price right now. Uh, that said, another another positive sign you could call it for the IPO market and the best ticker maybe of all time, ticker odd. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Cinemark shares down 8% since the Writers Guild of America went on strike in May, and they're down 4% just since last Friday when the Actors Union joined them, essentially shutting down Hollywood. They're rebounding a bit today. But Wall Street's now taking notice, with J.P. Morgan downgrading the stock to neutral and cutting their price target to 18 from 21, saying the actor's strike limits the film supply outlook. Investors had been hoping for more of a bounce from the movie stocks from Barbie and Oppenheimer premiering this weekend, a.k.a. Barbenheimer. CNBC.com entertainment reporter Sarah Witten is tracking the action. And you're here with me today, which is uh, very nice. Welcome. So let's start with... You actually have some figures behind this. What do, what do people think the opening weekend might be here for so-called Barbenheimer? I mean, the numbers keep going up and up. I mean, two days ago, they were saying 90 million. Now they're saying as much as 140 million for Barbie, and wow. that's just Barbie alone. Add in Oppenheimer, and you're looking between 40 and 60 million. So it could be $200 million this weekend just with those two films. That's not including the other films that are still out there, Mission Impossible, um, a 
number of other titles. So that's kind of crazy that it's going to be $200 million just from those two movies. When's the last time we had that big of an opening weekend or, or a box office weekend, it's, period? It's been a while. It's been a while. We've had a few big hits with Super Smash Brothers and, and movies like that, but we haven't really had a true summer blockbuster weekend in a very long time. And I saw some positive analyst commentary about the likes of Cinemark and the other movie stocks on this earlier, because again, finally foot traffic and people buy mm -hmm. all the, you know, the stuff that goes with it. And they just start to think about going to the movies again, which is seems to be something we had lost practice in doing. Absolutely. I mean, that foot traffic is very key because they only get a certain percentage of those ticket sales. They're making all their money on concessions, alcohol, and, you know, popcorn. So, uh, you know, these cinemas are very happy to have these two double features, and especially seeing that people are going to see both of them in the same weekend, sometimes on the same day. I, I know NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, came out and said 200,000 people have bought tickets to see both movies this weekend. Wait, there's, there's another NATO? There is another NATO. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is getting geopolitical. <laughs> yeah, but no, 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 you I'm mean sorry. The... I like to yeah. clarify. National yeah. <laughs> Association of Theater Owners, NATO. Um, my NATO. <laughs> exactly. So the, the kind of ironic twist to this is along comes perhaps the weekend that will save or restore the box office. And now we have a writer's strike. I mean, what's the potential for that to chill the pipeline of movies over the next, what is it, 6, 12, 18 months? Mm, for sure. I mean, for right now, Barbie and Oppenheimer are going to be fine. They got their marketing in early um, and really only saw a week where they couldn't do some press and they weren't having late night because of the writer's strike. With the other films, it's really going to come down to everything's in the can for this year. For the most part, there's a few special effects things, but it's really going to be 2022 and 2024 that you're, uh, I'm sorry, 2024 and 2025 that you're going to see some delays. Marvel has already pushed a number of its movie out on its slate um, really? for Disney. Um, and you notice that Disney is not appearing at Hall H this year to announce any projects um, at San Diego Comic-Con. So it, we'll see something if this continues, which most people expect it will. Uh, we should see a little pipeline clog up. That's amazing because we're only in 2023 right now. So mm -hmm. we're talking about years Absolutely. from now that people, it, so is there anything else that could fill the theaters in the meantime? I mean, um, we'll probably see some legacy titles come in through, um, you know, something like Fathom events that do sort of 20th anniversary specials or, you know, Father's Day specials or Christmas specials where they bring in legacy content um, and, and put that in theaters. Um, but on the TV side, you're going to probably see a rise in reality TV shows and yep. unscripted. Yep, and I've heard that even influencers, if they ever want to be part of the union, they can't, you know. Yeah, can't cross the line right now. Can't do anything that might violate that. So that kind of maybe rules out some of social media. If this strike were suddenly resolved this weekend, maybe these concerns could quickly go away. But what are you hearing on that front? Um, I, what I'm hearing in Los Angeles and on the streets is this is going to take a, a while. Uh, this is not going to get solved in a couple of weeks. This is uh, the writers and the actors are in it for the long haul. Uh, they're looking to get you know, some of the residuals get some of those um, guarantees in their contracts. And um, it just seems like there's a lot of animosity out right there right now. Uh, and it's going to take a little while to, to get back on good terms before they can come back to make a deal. I was just reading some of Fran Drescher's pointed comments about Bob Iger, for instance, and thinking this doesn't sound like a situation that's about to go away. No, it doesn't. Sarah, thanks for joining us uh, on these early days of what could be a, a long strike to come. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Witten, for more and the full story, you can head over to CNBC.com. Still to come, Carvana shares surging today on top of their already massive run this year. The company reporting a blowout second quarter, also in announcing a debt restructuring plan, but will it provide the financial flexibility Carvana execs are promising? Or is this just a Band-Aid move on a leaky ship? We'll discuss that next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Carvana surging as much as 43% today 
after the company reported a narrower-than-expected loss and almost a doubling in gross profit per unit from the previous year. But it's also Carvana's billion-dollar debt reduction that's really catching investors' attention. That restructuring is part of an effort to slash Carvana's debt load after it raised billions to capitalize on that pandemic surge in used car demand. But, of course, the market slowed shortly thereafter. And a separate filing, Carvana also says it'll sell up to a billion dollars worth of stock to raise capital. So does the street really think this financial engineering will pay off or... Is this just a short squeeze? We turn to none other than Herb Greenberg, senior editor at Empire Financial and a CNBC contributor, because Herb, and I apologize if I miss, I don't actually know your thoughts on this one. I'm guessing in one one way here, but I, I would like to know if you think they're being opportunistic. I would say if there weren't such a big short position, they'd be in real trouble, at least from their stock price perspective. Look, a few weeks ago, I wrote a piece uh, for Empire and I put it up on my Substack, my Herb in the Street on Substack, where I said, Welcome back to fantasy land, because that's kind of where we are. This is exactly what it is. I mean, think about this. Have people lost their minds, Kelly? I mean, <laughs> look, Carvana is a market cap of about $9 billion, $9.3 billion as of a few minutes ago. That's more than AutoNation. It's almost as high as CarMax. That, my friend, is nuts. It makes no sense. Think about what we're talking about. We're talking about a company. I'm sorry, I get so worked up about this. I get, we're talking about a company that did an arm's length debt restructuring with its founders. And then they're going to pay more interest rate. And then they're going to dilute. Hey, shareholders, you're lucky. You're going to get diluted. And then if you take a look at it, what did they really do? They really cut costs. They're still losing money. Oh, and, you know, if you look at the press release, and this is the thing that gets me, just look at the press release, the headline of the press release. Carvana delivers best quarter in company history for adjusted EBITDA, and total gross profit per unit. This is one quarter. It's adjusted EBITDA. If, again, if it wasn't for the short interest, mm-hmm. I would say you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion And today. we had a separate and guest. the market, the overall feel of the market. Right sure. Now. Jim Geller uh, from Rapid Ratings had warned a couple of months ago that had the worst financial profile of the major you know, auto names they cover. Um, 43% short interest or something to that effect. So again, you're sort of saying sellers beware here. Market cap of Macy's, by the way, $4.5 billion. So Carvana is worth twice that. Now, let me take the, uh, the, the meme trader side. I don't know who's in it, but let's just say, right? It's the future, Herb. I I, I used to see their trucks up and down our neighborhood. (laughs) They're being opportunistic, Herb. They're tapping. The the market's giving them the door and they're going to do a Netflix. They're going to they're going to dominate the market and then they're going to walk away with the last laugh in five or 10 years time. No, I in fact, I'll say in five or 10 years time, we're going to say, what are they going to be doing with those big towers they have, those elevators? What are they going to become? Look, look, I give them credit for one thing. They disrupted the industry. They disrupted the industry. They caused CarMax to have to go back and retool itself. I give them that. But the reality is they've got a ton of debt. They've got a lot to prove. You know, they hire turnaround experts. Who knows what their financial engineering plans are here? But I would say that, you know, we're back in a market that works for Carvana, and we're back in that market right now. Let's come back and see what they do the next quarter and the quarter after that. Because that's what you really have to look for here. One quarter does not make a trend. If you were the CEO, if they came and said, Herb, listen, we think you do great work. We know we have a little. That would be stupid. We know we're in a pickle. Wouldn't you be doing the same things right now, you know, paying off debt, using the equity? Who knows why? It's like what AMC did, right? They said, I don't know. People are huge fans of the stock. We might as well, you know, take the opportunity and go for it. You will do whatever you have to do to get investors' attention and move the stock higher because the higher the stock, the more finagling you can do 
uh, with the financial community. Uh, who knows what, if there's a, something else going to, what else they have lined up here. Um, but I think the business model has yet to be proven. Again, they were a great disruptor and they did it. You know, as we can see, the company blew up, not because they were such a great company. It blew up because, you know, they had to bear their souls. And when people saw what it really was, you know, look, it's a real, it's a real business. We see the towers. They're not earning any money. They've got to prove themselves. Would, and they haven't yet. Would anything change your mind? Yeah, if they start, if, they, if, if a forensic accountant can come in there and really go through the numbers once they start earning money and showing that this is genuinely high quality profits and you can compare it to, say, a CarMax, yeah, maybe then. All but right. I don't think that's going to ever be an issue. Herb, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate sure. it. Herb Greenberg with Empire Financial. Uh, by the way, Jim Cramer will have an exclusive interview with the CEO of Carvana tonight. Maybe can put some of these questions to him. That'll be on Mad Money starting at 6 p.m. Eastern time. I certainly won't miss it. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.